welcome to One of 200, the New Zealand Independent uh, International Domestic Politics Podcast. Uh, I am your co-host, one of your co-hosts, Branko Marcetic. Uh, we are on hiatus, but uh, we are still going to use some of these months to do some interesting interviews with, with fascinating people about fascinating things happening all over the world. Uh, and this is the first installment of one of those. I, I have a great guest uh, that I've been wanting to get on the show for a very long time. Uh, my friend Miles Kamflassen, he is a writer, uh, editor, and, and organizer uh, in Chicago, um, uh, works at Indies Times, a great progressive magazine here in Chicago, and has also contributed to Jacobin, among many, many projects, uh, including some great uh, cover bands. Uh, Miles, how are you going? I'm very good. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Well, the reason uh, you're here is, is, is maybe no secret to, to uh, the people listening. You know, there was this massive election uh, that happened in Chicago. Some very interesting parallels, actually, to an election we had in Auckland uh, some, some months back, where you had a progressive candidate that much of uh, the left was united behind that came from you know some of the more disadvantaged communities of the city and you had this kind of uh business friendly sock puppet um uh, uh who you know seemed to uh regard the very idea of uh governing with disdain and seemed to sort of mostly be uh, in, in favor of kind of um uh, doling out favors uh both you know broadly you could describe both elections that way except in Auckland's case uh the the hapless right-wing uh, business idiot ended up winning, uh, very sadly. Um, and then, meanwhile, uh, just this past week, in fact, uh, uh, six days ago, as we record this, um, the Progressive actually ended up winning in Chicago. Um, now, you are a Chicago boy, born and bred. You have seen mayors come and go. You've seen a lot of things in the city. You've seen the city change. I'm curious, just walk us through how significant you think this win was in the, in, the, in the scope of you know Chicago's political history. Sure, it's hard to even really put into context exactly how uh, much of a transformation this is from the way the politics has traditionally operated in the city. You know, the there's been essentially anointment that's gone down for for many years in terms of people are elevated through the various connections to business interests or to the political establishment. The biggest break in recent history of that was with uh, Lori Lightfoot, the current mayor's win in 2019. She took uh, the fifth floor of City Hall following Rahm Emanuel, who had had a disastrous reign for two terms as mayor of Chicago, obviously former chief of staff to Obama, who had been a real architect of neoliberal politics and the type of kind of corporate-centric, business-minded um, governance that dominated much of politics in the Democratic Party and specifically in Chicago for a long time, he had taken the reins himself, Rahm Emanuel, from Richard Daly, who was the heir to the um, throne, essentially, of Chicago politics after his father had, had uh, uh, Richard J. Daly, had been mayor for it for decades. In between those two, there was, you know, bits of Democratic hope. You know, there was Harold Washington's historic victory in the 1980s, and he really represented a progressive vision and, you know, hope for a different way of doing politics. After he tragically died in office... Um, there was some shakeup and things really kind of went back into their normal formation of, you know, following the classic, you know, business interests. And that's when um, Daily the second one. So that's been basically the trajectory. And then in 2019, 
uh, Lori Lightfoot was able to win. And a lot of people saw that as a victory for independence and transparency in politics and a real marker of change. And certainly it was in the sense that, you know, uh, in terms of her background, Lori Lightfoot was a, you know, a black lesbian who had not been, had a history in elected uh, politics before. And she ran on a progressive platform that was all about things like providing affordable housing, implementing an elected school board, reopening mental health clinics, all things that um, progressives in the city, organizers, community groups were supporting. And so that victory was initially seen as, you know, transformative in and of itself. Um, that said, as soon as she got into office, basically by day one, she aligned herself with the same type of corporate-backed influential uh, figures and you know groups in the city that have been running politics for a very long time. And I think it speaks to the fact that she didn't really have a background in organizing herself, certainly not in representing working-class politics. She had been a corporate lawyer. She had like had relationships with power players in the city. And so... Um, it was a lot harder to, you know, get a sense that she would follow through on her uh, campaign promises, and she didn't. She reneged on them once she got into office and really took a, a oppositional attitude towards progressive organizers in her city, really seemed to disdain um, p- people in Chicago who had, you know, had issues with her political vision and who wanted to see her follow through on a lot of the things she promised. So, and she's, you know, been mayor for the past four years and she'll hand over um, the gavel uh, in terms of running city council next month to Brandon Johnson, who is the new mayor who, as you said, ran a progressive community oriented campaign against a classic neoliberal figure in Paul Ballas, his opponent, who was a has been a perennial candidate. He's never been elected to office, and that is a trend that has now continued based on last week's uh, results. But he has been an administer, administrator of austerity in many different ways. He has uh, worked both as head of school systems in cities like Chicago, Philadelphia, New Orleans, um, and carried out a privatization agenda focused on handing, giving handouts to big business and taking democratic decision-making out of the hands of communities and really serving as like a pawn of, um, of big business interests. And that's certainly the type of, um, the type of administration he was planning to run had he won the election in Chicago, in addition to running on, uh, classic law and order style campaign. I think he really took a lot of notes from Eric Adams in New York and other Democratic Party figures who have taken a really rightward turn when it comes to issues of public safety and crime. Whereas Brandon Johnson uh, had been promising a very different vision for public safety. And this election, I think, was a real um, referendum on whether that could work, you know, whether running on appeals towards uh, trying to reimagine public safety and do investments in things like social services and jobs programs and violence prevention and mental health supports rather than simply funneling more money into law enforcement could be successful with Democratic voters in a um, city like Chicago. And so, you know, Brandon Johnson comes out of the working class and he comes out of organizing. He was a longtime union organizer 
um, with the Chicago Teachers Union. He had previously been a public school teacher. And he's, you know, he's gone on a hunger strike to reopen a closed public school. He's been on the front lines of uh, the strikes that the Chicago Teachers Union went out on, historically both in 2012, which helped to set off the kind of red wave of teacher strikes we saw take over the country in a lot of the 2010s, as well as in 2019. Um, when the teachers struck in Chicago, he again worked to um, fight school closings, to take on a different approach to contract bargaining, uh, basically like social justice unionism, like bargaining for the comic good to expand the type of policies that um, are par part of a contract, you know, rather than just dealing with wages and quality of life stuff for workers trying to win um, investments in things like uh, uh, housing for uh, students that go into the public uh, Chicago public schools that are unhoused. That was a big part of uh, Brandon Johnson's history. And so v much in a different way than Lori Lightfoot, who came into office without a real background in the type of grassroots community organizing that has been so instrumental to the left in Chicago, Brandon Johnson really has those connections in a deep way. And so it's understandable to you know, the verdict is out, you know, or we don't know yet exactly how he's going to govern, but it's, mu this is much more of a victory for the progressive left of having one of their own elevated into city hall than ever could have been claimed in 2019 or in years before. And so in that sense, it really is um, a transformative election. And I think representative of the fact that left-wing politics that are unabashed, that are unapologetic, that really focus on um, building up the rights of working class people to have a dignified life and live in safety and have access to things like, you know, housing and education and healthcare, and not just access to them, but actually be able to take advantage of them, you know, and not have the type of stratified, segregated um, city that has been part of Chicago's history, and I'd say kind of a dark history, for um, a very long time. And I'll just end on saying that one of the things that's really representative of that is just today, um, you know, when we're recording this uh, podcast interview, the uh, Chicago State University, which is a uh, university in the city of Chicago, they uh, their workers are on strike. And Brandon Johnson, as mayor-elect, just days after winning this historic election he's not meeting with like big business leaders and planning how he's going to give handouts to them he was on the picket line today with those chicago state workers that were out on strike and so i think that that's a good sign of the type of governance he's going to engage in once he's in office in the sense that he knows where his roots are he knows that what his base is and um, I don't think there's been a Chicago mayor who's been on the picket line in my lifetime that I can, you know, that I can think of. So that's that's a good kind of entryway into talking about what type of a, you know, politician Brandon Johnson is and what kind of moment we're in in, in the city of Chicago. Johnson's background uh, as not just someone of the working class, but as a union organizer, is that is that something new and unique in Chicago politics? I mean, not just in the the recent recent past, but I mean, even in the the grand scope of Chicago uh, politics. Yeah, I don't think that there's been a union organizer elected mayor before. And in fact, that's one of the ways his opposition has tried to um, 
cast him in a negative light as saying that because he was a paid union organizer, he somehow was um, himself a puppet of union bureaucrats or bosses that are controlling what he's going to um, do once he's in office. Really, when you look at it, the Chicago Teachers Union has been, um, since at least the uh, 2010s, has been one of the most democratic and militant um, and inspirational union locals of teachers in the country. And they helped to provide the model that a lot of unions, and from New York to Los Angeles, cities across the country, um, modeled and, and followed their example of, of working to engage members to push forward a strong progressive vision that is all about expanding public schools and resisting the type of corporate education reform that had been so um, much a, a part of the Democratic Party's um, in, internal agenda for so long. You know, you had people like Michelle Rhee and Eva Moskowitz and different um, and even like Arne Duncan, at Obama's education secretary, they'd all been pushing the same type of charter school approach mm -hmm. that would seek to diminish the role of unions and put in private operators and business interests that are all private, uh, profit motivated, we should mention, um, in place of the public sector. And so that had been, you know, how politics had been run for a very long time. And the Chicago Teachers Union really resisted that model. You know, one of the things that um, they did when the, this uh, group, uh, this caucus named CORE, um, the Caucus of Rank-and-File uh, Educators, once they came together, one of the first um, things they did was they started a reading group and read Shock Doctrine by Naomi Klein, which is obviously a, a instrumental text when it comes to understanding the neoliberal experiment and how market fundamentalism and you know corporate-driven policies have impacted uh, not just education but you know housing policy making down the line. When you you know look at, at New Orleans, for example, after Hurricane Katrina, as soon as the rebuilding process began, just private vultures flocked in and tried to take what they could from the city and make money off of it. And one of the people that was part of that process, we should mention, is Paul Vallis, who was Brandon Johnson's opponent, who was brought in in 2007 to run the recovery school district and basically oversaw the complete eradication of public schools in New Orleans and the replacement of them with with charters. So throughout that time, the CTU, Chicago Teachers Union, was pushing a radically different vision about investments in um, social programs and public service and doing it through uh, class politics, essentially asking uh, wealthy, um, well-heeled interests to uh, pay more, you know, whether it's corporations and big businesses or the ultra-rich, um, really trying to create more equality when it comes to uh, providing assets and services in the public interest. And so that's where Brandon Johnson came out of. He initially was a public school teacher himself, and then he got involved in the union, and then he became an organizer, a paid organizer, as if that is you know, something to be ashamed of. I think we, should, we could all agree people deserve to be paid, whether you're an organizer or whatever. And so... I think that's a positive thing myself, but that's the kind of like scare tactics that um, the right and even like mainstream media tried to play into of saying, oh, he's going to be beholden to the union and won't be able to be an effective uh, 
you know, governor and when it comes to being mayor of Chicago, voters clearly saw through that and said we'd rather go with somebody who is, you know, a regular Chicago and who represents everyday people um, than this perennial candidate, kind of corporate stooge in Paul Vallis, who has a long history of uh, leaving a trail of disaster in all the cities that, that he's operated in. And so I think there's a lot of, um, you know, hope in the, the fact that Brandon Johnson was, can't, comes out of union organizing. Chicago is historically a union town. You know, we have high unionization rates and the city prides itself on being, you know, blue collar in many ways and continuing to have, you know, some manufacturing districts here and providing kind of an old Midwest industrial corridor mm-hmm. um, type of uh, type of workforce. And so and there's a long history of unions being an important part of that. And so I do think that um, it's unique that Brandon Johnson is comes out of the union movement and out of. Uh, labor organizing, but I think that's really beneficial when it comes to being a for his opportunity to enact the type of vision that he ran on running for mayor. Yeah, yeah. Make no mistake, uh, Chicago is a union town, right? That's what he said in his in his speech. I mean, it's it, it seems significant to me that <clears throat> it seems significant to me that the only other person who spoke at his uh, his, his his victory rally was the head of the Chicago Teachers Union. Um, and I just want to dwell on that for a little longer because I, to me it's it's uh, interesting and key that uh, what prefigured this win was the Chicago Teachers Union, you know, really transforming from not just a, a, a union that fights for the, the improvement of, of working standards and wages for its own members, but also it, turning into a real political force in the city. Um, and I mean, you know... There's been previous politicians who have taken on the union, right? And they have ended up, at least in recent years, uh, uh, well, not, not being able to, to come up with very good results as a result of that. Um, just give me, give me a sense of that, you know, just how key these uh, battles in Chicago with the union became this uh, uh, political uh, force was to, to, to what happened. Sure. Well, I think you just looking at Lori Lightfoot's tenure is instructive because she came into office... Um, and in 2019 and one of her first acts was essentially to declare war on the Chicago Teachers Union uh, at least to vilify their leadership and take a hard stand against basic contract proposals that the union was asking for and that's what led to um, the thousands of teachers um, flooding the streets on strike in 2019 which is a massive embarrassment for Lori Lightfoot, I think, I, the public was clearly on the side, if you looked at any of the polling, was clearly on the side of the teachers in that battle. And I think part of the reason she did it was just vindictiveness, because the Chicago Teachers Union had endorsed her opponent in the race, Tony Preckwinkle. Um, and Lightfoot thought, I think, when she came into office, she thought, well, th- these people endorsed my opponent, so I'm going to take it out on them and make clear that they know who's really in the driver's seat here. And I would say, in part, as a result of that, she's just become the first incumbent mayor in 40 years to lose election in Chicago. You know, she didn't even make it to the runoff election. She she wasn't one of the top two vote-getters even in the first round of voting back in February. And I think that speaks to both what I mentioned earlier about her 
basically running away from all of her campaign promises when she got into office and cozying up with corporate interests. You know, for example, one of the big policy issues that was, you know, on the table during that race in 2019 was a giant mega development called Lincoln Yards that's being built on the north side of Chicago. And the real estate developers, uh, Sterling Bay, that are behind it were being offered uh, like $1.5 billion in TIF funding, which is basically taxpayer you know, funded subsidies to build this mega development, which was incredibly unpopular in the community and remains so. And Lori Lightfoot ran against that when she was running for office. She said, no, we need to, you know, relitigate that. We can't, you know, just give away all this taxpayer money. As soon as she got into office, one of her first acts was to approve it and and hand that money over. So I think that's just an example of the type of, you know, uh, the disparity disparity between what she was running on and what she actually did in office was but the other thing is she did she vilified the teachers and she and she went to war with them and um now brandon johnson who was really the hand-picked uh candidate for the ctu you know they heavily funded his campaign as did their parent union the american federation of teachers um that uh he is now the mayor you know back in uh Early on in the race, in January, Lori Lightfoot famously gave a quote to the Chicago Tribune, I think, and said, um, oh, the Chicago Teachers Union is get, getting behind Brandon Johnson. God bless. He is not going to be mayor of the city. You know, these are words that now like live in infamy because obviously she's wrong. And now there's these photos of her having to shake his hand in front of the mayor's office doing the, the transition. So... Um, I think it goes to show that's what happens when you try to pick a fight with the Chicago Teachers Union, which has really built up a base of support in the city and does not run from a fight when when it presents itself. Back in 2015, uh, the former president of the Chicago Teachers Union, Karen Lewis, was planning to run for mayor against Rahm Emanuel when he was uh, running for his second term. And she sadly, you know, got a cancer diagnosis while essentially being about to run while still campaigning. Um, And so she had to drop out and couldn't run. And instead, the CTU put their money behind um, and support behind Jesus Chuy Garcia, now a a U.S. House representative in Chicago. Um, And he took Rahm Emanuel all the way to a runoff, even though nobody knew you know, in Chicago, who he was outside of a select few of his constituents, mm-hmm. he was a pretty un, uh, unknown. This was before he was a House representative. Um, and they were able to do that because there was so much goodwill built up among the city with the with the Chicago Teachers Union. In 2019, they got behind Tony Preckwinkle, but uh, she had alienated a lot of voters across the city herself. And to be honest, Lori Lightfoot was more successful on running this kind of anti-corruption campaign. There was a lot of focus on um, this person, Ed Burke, who's been a longtime city council member who was involved in many uh, federal corruption schemes and cases and Lori Lightfoot was able to effectively tie Tony Preckwinkle to him um but it's all to say like the CTU has remained a really important viable political force in the city for a long time and yet the people that represent corporate Chicago whether it's Ron Manuel or Lori Lightfoot continue to try to attack them and then they lose you know I mean Ron Manuel 
basically ran away with his tail between his legs. I mean, granted, he's like the ambassador to Japan now or something. You know, Biden handed him off a little role, but he... Uh, you know, he knew he couldn't win another race for a third term in Chicago, especially after the scandal over Laquan McDonald's killing a black teenager by Chicago police that his administration effectively covered up. The public lost faith in his administration. And so, um, yeah, this, I think, is a culmination of many years of real strong organizing, not just by the CTU itself, but a whole constellation of progressive organizations, labor unions, independent, independent political organizations across the city, including United Working Families, which is kind of an affiliate of uh, the Working Families Party nationally and um, in the U.S., um, running candidates across the board. You know, there's been dozens of candidates elected to the, the Chicago City Council, to the Cook County Board of Commissioners, to other legislative bodies that have run on the back of these community groups and labor unions and won. And that's why we see a whole, uh, you know, there's like been a sea change in city council, which is the legislative body in the city um, uh, of progressives that have come in and ousted incumbents and entrenched interests that have like run this, you know, their positions in the city for a long time. And they're pushing left-wing policy, you know, right here in Logan Square where we're recording this, Carlos Ramirez Rosa, who's a democratic socialist, um, uh, city council member and alderman of the 35th ward was able to build a giant uh, 100% affordable housing complex on former CTA land. The Chicago Transit Authority owned this lot, this parking lot that had just been sitting idle. And he was able to help with community support build a massive 100% affordable housing complex that he named then named after Lucy Parsons, who was a radical uh, feminist and socialist in Chicago around the time of the, the Haymarket. She was actually married to one of the Haymarket martyrs of the Haymarket affair back at the end of the 19th century. Um, so it all speaks to the fact there's been a radical current in Chicago for a long time, and yet the folks on the top have tried to enforce a more kind of corporate-minded um, approach that I think is learned from the conservative side of Chicago's political history, which includes things like, you know, Milton Friedman basically coming up with the ideas behind neoliberalism when he was at University of Chicago, um, and instead pushing forward a, a bold left-wing vision. And I think Brandon Johnson is more the heir to that than any other candidate I've seen run for major political office. Um, and that is the result of him coming out of this radical tradition of the CTU from everything from reading Naomi Klein's shock doctrine to, you know, going on hunger strike to reopen a school. Like that's the type of uh, pedigree that is very hard to come by for a, a political figure, especially when it comes to a position like Mayor. Uh, you mentioned that Lightfoot quote uh, about Brian Johnson <laughs> never becoming mayor. I, I, correct me if I'm wrong. I think he started out polling in the single digits um, uh, and obviously, you know, I think any progressive insurgent anywhere has a mountain of obstacles that they have to overcome to, to, to try and win, and particularly seemingly in this moment in the U.S. where uh, at least uh, it seems like there's been um, a, a lack of success for, for left-wing candidates at the, the munici municipal level. Um, and plus you have this, uh, you know, what we might call a crime wave, um, to use the the, the rights terminology that, that has uh, made things difficult uh, for, for progressives and, 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 and socialists. Um, so, I mean, what 
roadblocks beyond some of the stuff that I've uh, outlined here were facing Johnson as he prepared to run. And, and what were the keys to, to him overcoming this? To, to coming from, you know, a guy who was nowhere in the polls to, to suddenly, you know, winning a, a fairly robust victory over his, uh, his right-wing opponent. Yeah, and we're seeing, you know, it's a week out almost from the election, and we're continuing to see his margins increase as more mail-in ballots come in. I mean, it's not going to change the ultimate outcome. He is the mayor-elect. But I think it speaks to the fact that oftentimes in these elections, people take a snapshot the night of the victory or the night of the outcome and think that's it. You know, he's gone up a whole percentage point in terms of his uh, margin of victory since... Um, April 4th, and probably will continue to do so um, over the next couple weeks, I think, as more mail-in ballots are counted. So it's going to be a little bit more resounding of a victory than was initially reported. Um, in terms of the challenges, you're right. I mean, this has been the the narrative for m- many years now in Democratic Party circles has been that if you want to be successful, especially at the municipal level, as you mentioned, um, in running a political campaign, you have to run to the right on crime and public safety. And uh, any time, you know, mainstream corporate media can find an example of that, they'll go, you know, whole hog in terms of, uh, of pushing it. And in fact, even, even happened in this, and, you know, so Eric Adams and... Um, uh, New York, I think, was a prime example of that. Also, Chesa Bunin in San Francisco, the former prosecutor who um, had been ousted in a recall election, which was also funded by the same type of corporate forces that are always get behind these, you know, right wing uh, campaigns around crime and public safety. Um, these are examples that the media seizes on, and certainly, you know, corporate Democrats, not to mention the right wing in in America like to point to to say you've got to be a um, law and order candidate you've got to not give an inch when it comes to issues of you know police reform you have to protect police from reform rather than actually try to change the system in any meaningful way and that happened in this race too because after the first round of voting in february paul vallis um, the loser, Paul Vallis, um, as I like to call him, uh, he, uh, uh, he did win the most votes. He, he was the top vote getter with like 30 some percent. Um, but it was a field of nine candidates at the time. So that was able to vault him into the runoff. Um, and he had run this real law and order based campaign. The people that had, he, he basically ran as a MAGA Republican, essentially. He was trying to build off the 15% of the vote that Donald Trump got in the city of Chicago and expand that to build kind of a right wing base. And the people that backed his campaign most vociferously were people like John Catanzara, who was, uh, the head of the fraternal order of police here in Chicago, who was a strong Donald Trump supporter and backs the January 6th. Um, rioters and has said all kinds of horrible hate speech about Muslims, for example. Um, and he, you know, is a huge backer of Paul Ballas and got the FOP, helped get the FOP to endorse him in the race. Um, and so after Paul Ballas, you know, was victorious in that first round, or at least was the top vote getter, there was all these breathless media headlines saying, oh, voters in Chicago have just shown again that you need to have a tough-on-crime approach if you want to be successful in politics, especially in big-city politics. Mm-hmm. Well, if you take that logic, you know, all these uh, media headlines that flooded, you know, into 
on, on, on the newspaper pages after that first round of election, you'd have to say that, no, the opposite is true. Voters actually rejected it when they were given a one-to-one uh, choice between either the candidate and Paul Vallis, who was clearly, you know, promising to hire thousands of more cops and just push more money into the police department, or somebody in Brandon Johnson, who articulated a really comprehensive and nuanced alternative to, to that type of approach. It wasn't saying, you know, abolition now, right? It was not like a purely far left approach, but it was reimagining what we mean when we talk about public safety and really focusing on the fact that when when it comes to emergency calls the majority of them are for issues that don't involve a crime you know they're they're domestic disputes their mental health crises their issues that require some type of response but not necessarily somebody with a gun entering the situation especially somebody who's not trained to deal with those type of emergency situations so that's the kind of thing that brandon johnson talked about on the campaign and uh, he was hammered, not just in by Paul Vallis's campaign and his wealthy right wing backers, you know, which included many billionaires. You know, he got over a million dollars from Donald Trump supporters in the campaign. People like Ken Griffin, the mm-hmm. CEO of the hedge fund Citadel, who's a mega GOP donor, backed Paul Vallis. Um, and he was able and Paul Vallis was able to outspend Brandon Johnson two to one in uh, in the election, especially in the winning days. And so there was this huge pile-on, and they were all painting Brandon Johnson as a defund the police candidate, as a radical, as a, as a threat to people's mm-hmm. public safety, as a radical threat. Um, and, y- y- you know, Johnson, to his credit, didn't really change his position and certainly didn't change the way he was talking about <clears throat> issues of crime and public safety. But that was a massive challenge that he faced um, in the race, and he was able to overcome it. And I hope that that is a message that resonates when it comes to how the strategists across the country who are the people involved in running campaigns, you know, whether it's for mayor or for, you know, city council person or um, whatever level of government, that they, that, that they take a lesson from this and see that the, the, the most high crime areas in the city of Chicago, the places where crime is most prevalent and violence is very segregated in Chicago, especially when it comes to um, uh, race, because the city is segregated racially. Those areas that you might expect to respond most to a tough on crime message, um, you know, if that's the perspective. In fact, those areas are the ones that went for Brandon Johnson the most, you know, and so his message really... Um, made it through to those voters, and they uh, took his side of the debate of how we how best to deal with issues of um, of crime, and that's to attack the root causes of them, and to do that through long term investments. And so, you know, that's that's one thing that I don't think has gotten tons of coverage, or at least not attention on uh in terms of the outcome of this is the fact that the very voters who might expect to be most yeah responsive to the type of agenda that paul Vallis was running on and that his right-wing backers wanted to uh succeed were the ones that rejected him in the end and and elevated brandon johnson into the mayor's office yeah it seems interesting that uh i mean the way they thread that needle i mean you look at something like india walton in buffalo uh dsa candidate um, won big and then uh, had this shock defeat at the, at the hands of the, the man that she had, had beaten earlier in the, in the Democratic primary. 
and it seemed that her association with with defund had sort of activated this massive um uh, organizing uh among police and firefighters that just sort of swamped the turnout and, and really kind of um uh, uh, drove this kind of negative based galvanization against the campaign more so than a positive one for her for her opponent um, and then Johnson seemed like he kind of aligned himself more with the approach that, that at least from what I saw in 2022 in the, in the the midterms that a lot of socialists and progressives were taking where they were saying you know crime is an issue violent crime we're absolutely going to punish it and you know we're, they stayed away from defund but they also very much push the, the, the goals of defund, which were to move police away from being the ones first at the scene to deal with someone who's mentally ill or, you know, someone else in a tragic situation and to put more resources into, into all these social services. So it's, a, it's an interesting lesson, perhaps. I, I mean, I know if we'll see it more in, in other elections, but it'll be an interesting test. But I want to ask you two more questions about the, the campaign before we move on to sort of what's, what's next uh, briefly. Just number one, I mean, crime, I've heard that most polls show that this was the exit polls, show that this was the, the, the biggest concern uh, among people. Um, you know, I, I don't know if you've seen those polls. I'm curious to hear your take on it. But, but number one, I mean, is crime the only thing? Yes, crime is happening. But is it the only thing that people were voting on and people were worried about in this election, that were worried about, you know, the, the, when they go out and, and, and walk around their city? And then number two, how key was the role of, you know, that kind of grassroots door knocking um, that we have heard so much of, you know, when it comes to other progressive insurgents, whether AOC or Bernie Sanders or whoever, how, how much did that play a role in what ended up happening with Johnson being able to overcome this massive money disadvantage? Yeah, well, on the first point, I do think crime obviously was a top concern of voters, and that was true when you looked at polls across the board. Um, but as I said, the people that were facing the reality of crime the most were clearly decided that Brandon Johnson was the best, you know, candidate in the race. And so um, I think that it speaks to the fact that there, when people think about safety, there's many ways in which we can be safe. Obviously, you don't want to experience physical threats or harm. You also don't want to have your car broken into or, you know, have your property stolen. But in terms of safety, you also want to be able to access safe housing, you know, where you feel comfortable, where your water works. Um, you want to be able to be able to go to the doctor when you need to go to the doctor. You know, you want to be able to send your kid to a school that you know that they're going to be safe in and then they're going to um, have the resources they need to come out of it and be able to, you know, move on to... Uh, get a job and you want to have you know young people able to have options in their community of career development and um, jobs programs and um, youth outreach all of these things that are that go far beyond just crime and, and perhaps you might also be uh, disinclined to, to you know being shot by a police officer or yeah. being brutalized by, by well sure and wait, exactly so when it comes to safety as well you want to be safe from the scourge of police violence, which we know is rampant in Chicago, and there's been so many examples of that, and so many breakdowns in terms of community uh, trust with with police officers, and that's one thing that Brandon Johnson was very clear about too, is was um, following through on the consent decree that has been put down on the city of Chicago following that um, videotape of the murder of Laquan McDonald 
um, there was an outcry, understandably, by communities the same way things happen in response to George Floyd's murder, to Eric Garner's murder, high-profile examples of racialized murders by police officers of black people, black and brown people that is endemic in police departments across the country. Um, there's outrage over that, you know, and that is... Th- that outrage can exist alongside a legitimate concern over public safety. Um, but it means thinking about public safety in a broader way, I think, than just issues of crime. And we can't, I just can't repeat enough that the, the areas that face crime were ones that wanted to go for a different approach than what Paul Alice was promising, which is basically a continuation of what has been what what's happened for years on years the police budget continues to go up in the city of chicago more police officers are um being deployed and yet the crime rate has not gone down you know that has not been a solution and i think that reality is more becoming more and more clear as time goes on and the areas that went hardest for paul vallis are some of the safest neighborhoods mm-hmm. in the city of chicago where crime really is doesn't isn't a daily concern Mm. for residents those are the ones that want and they may be concerned about crime but it's like a foreign threat you know and i think that's also partially racialized as Mm. well you know because of how sadly uh segregation and fear has created a climate of racial racial animus Mm. um in the city that's not i don't think representative of chicago but it is sadly a, a part of the conditions on the ground in terms of voters being, you know, disconnected from one another. And I think there is, uh, and the, and the way that Paul Vallis ran his campaign was super racialized too, you know, and fearing the other. And, you know, he tried to really make Brandon Johnson seem like a scary threat as a result and try to dismiss his role as a public school teacher as if that didn't give him any, you know, uh, cred as a public employee, as somebody who had been working for the, for the public good. Um, on your second point about uh, volunteer operations, yeah, that was instrumental. There's no way that Brandon Johnson would be even in the runoff, let alone having won the uh, the election for mayor, had it not been for an army of volunteers and um, organizers that worked to make that victory a reality. You know, United Working Families, which I mentioned before, they claim to have knocked on over half a million doors for Brandon Johnson, just United Working Families alone, not to mention the direct work by the campaign and all these other various community groups that were involved and recruited thousands of volunteers. And you can't, you know, it's hard to find a neighborhood where you wouldn't, uh, in the week, days and weeks before the election on April 4th, where you, there, you didn't see door hangers for Brandon Johnson, you know, on people's um, front doors, on their, on their stoops, because... Uh, turf got covered. People hit hit the ground, and it was a real uh, galvanization of public support. And it existed both through people doing that kind of on the ground, like hitting the doors, volunteer work, text banking, phone banking, things like that. But then also people volunteering in tons of other ways. There was this um, public arts uh, revival when people were making this all. There's a there's something called bootlegs for Brandon, where there was people making. Um, t-shirts and buttons and posters and all this um, 
art around Brandon Johnson's campaign that then was used as a fundraising vehicle to help fund the campaign. And when you're being outspent two to one due to this massive corporate uh, investment going on into the race, that's bound to create conditions where you're, you know, you're, you're underfunded. And so having volunteers that are willing to do that type of work in addition to the door knocking, I think was really important. And I think that's a, another model that other left-wing challengers can take across the country when they look at how to defeat deep-seated interests and do it in a way that brings together community involvement and support behind a candidate and there's no like you said I mean Brandon Johnson was pulling at two percent in October and now he's mayor like you don't do that unless you have people on the ground that are true believers that want to see the way their city and society is run radically transformed yeah. well uh, I've kept you here for a while I do I do want to ask you one more thing um, uh, so hopefully you can maybe <laughs> somehow cram, uh, cram it all in the space of you know three to five minutes but um you know, the campaign's over, Johnson's won, um, he, like any mayor, is going to be facing a, a, many hurdles to, to try and enact his, his fairly ambitious agenda. I mean, sketch out what the uh, next, you know, months and years look like. What what are the challenges and, and, and potential avenues that he'll be able to use to try and make this happen? Um, what what kind of opposition might he face, that kind of thing? Uh, you got three minutes to do it. Go, go. <laughs> Well, there's no doubt that the this is when the work begins. And it, one maxim that I've heard that I think is really reflective of the reality that everyone who was involved in Johnson's campaign now faces is that, they, you, you know, we might have won an election, but really what was won was a lot more work because there's <laughs> no doubt that that's going to be, there's going to be nonstop challenges. Number one is the nature of you know, austerity politics and the fact that there isn't a progressive, uh, you know, revenue stream in the city of Chicago right now. And that will need to be basically created in order to fund the type of ambitious social programs that Johnson has called for. Instead, what we've had for many years is just a system of nickel and diming residents by doing things like raising, you know, you know, fees for parking or red light cameras or property taxes, ways to peel off more money from the working class rather than creating a more equitable and progressive system that calls for the rich to pay up. And so doing that will be a challenge because there's some things that can be done at the municipal level, things like raising the corporate head tax. The real estate transfer tax, these are ways to peel off some more money from big corporate entities and big developers. Um, but when it comes to things like a pro actual progressive income tax, which was floated before in Chicago and faced an onslaught of corporate-funded uh, attack ads, that failed. It, it, it won in Chicago. It was won like over 70% of the vote as a referendum. But and Governor J.B. Pritzker was a huge backer of it, the Democratic governor here of Illinois, but statewide it lost. And so that's going to be a challenge. Johnson has also ran on things like the a financial transaction tax, you know, that would take a skim of small amount off of each financial transaction. And obviously in Chicago, there's the Board of Trade. It's a huge financial hub. So that could generate huge sums of money. Um, but that will require being passed at the state level. To, to, in Springfield to get through. So that'll be a challenge. And all the while, while doing these things, um, because, and they should just say that some of the stuff that he wants to do is like year-round youth employment, um, 
massively expanding the stock of affordable and public housing in the city, um, providing the type of mental health supports and training programs to, you know, provide an alternative to traditional um, policing, as well as to just provide basic relief. You know, one of the things for for working class people, and one of the things he did as a Cook County commissioner is he actually was a co-leader on a universal basic income project. That's one of the base. What's one of the um, biggest pilot projects in the country of providing just working class people stimulus money essentially to um to be able to afford basic provisions in their lives um that wasn't part of his budget proposal but i think that's clearly part of the way that brandon johnson sees the future of municipal top politics operating is through getting more money from rich people and giving it to poor and working class people. And whenever you have a class politics vision like that, you're going to face the threat of capital flight. And that's another big challenge is that the corporate entities that exist in Chicago um, can threaten to leave. They can just say, we're going to pack up our bags and go elsewhere, you know, and take the jobs that we provide the city with, uh, with us. And that's, always a challenge because you've got to balance having you know a robust economic ecosystem with having the type of progressive politics you want to see and you don't want to um, put yourself in a position where that's going to be more of a challenge then there's the issue of crime where john catnazera who i mentioned before the head of the fop promised that uh, there would be mass resignation of officers, he said up to a thousand officers could resign if Brandon Johnson's mayor. So they're, they're going to defund the police. Exactly, they're going to self-defund, <laughs> basically. And he promised blood in the streets. I mean, that's his quote. I mean, it's it's pretty horrifying, mm. but it speaks to the type of sabotage and undermining that um, we've seen happen before when progressives have have won these types of races and the outsized role of. Um, police officers and being able to create a crisis for um, these new administrations that then will make it impossible effectively for them to implement their agendas. And so the challenges are steep, you know, and, and they're going to be fast coming. You know, he gets sworn in um, next month in mid-May and that's right when a lot of the uh, COVID funding is going to dry up. You know, there's a lot of states and cities got huge in, infusions of cash through various through the CARES Act and through various um, subsequential legislation at the federal level that were passed to provide um, money for states and cities to make it through the COVID crisis. All of that is drying up, which will make it a much more austere time in terms of the um, city's budget. And he's going to have to renegotiate both the Chicago Teachers Union contract, which will they will certainly be making you know strong demands, many of which Johnson has said he agrees with, but which will cost a lot of money. And he's going to have to renegotiate the the police budget, uh, the the police contract, which will they are certainly going to ask for way more money in their budget as well, and might try to create a a fight out of that. And so. Yeah, that's all going to be uh, coming down on this uh, new administration just as it's trying to get on its feet. The The things going in Johnson's favor, I would say, is that despite all these attempts to vilify him and to you know treat him as an outside other and stuff that have been done for the better part of a year now, Chicago voters like him. 
right? He's a very well... If you looked at all the favorability ratings, like his numbers were through the roof compared to people like Paul Vallis or even Lori Lightfoot. So he's starting out being like a well-liked figure. And he's been really effective at building coalitions. A lot of people focus on the left-wing support he got in this race by people like uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, who, who endorsed him. But he also reached out to more, you know, politically moderate uh, uh, leaders who endorsed him as well. And he got the support of Jesse Jackson, who kind of like started the first Rainbow Coalition. You know, he's a true who was a true coalition builder in the 80s and brought together very um, far apart groups and had them as part of his coalition. And so that, I think, speaks to the fact that there's a real potential for him to be able to avoid some of the pitfalls that have um, befallen other previous administrators of the, st mm -hmm. of the state in the city of Chicago and that could give him a leg up when it comes to taking on these challenges and being able to build on the opportunities that are presented by this really transformational win. Mm. It doesn't hurt to have uh, uh, an activist base that is uh, energized around you and, 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 and unions that want to see you succeed. Totally. People are hype, right? Like, mm. this is, like, the most, like, hype the left has been for in, <laughs> I can remember, in the city of Chicago. And I think, you know, the vibes have not been great for a while. <laughs> we, the only vibe shifts we had have been, like, shifts to the right and people talking about, you know, we need to whatever have uh, corp corporations run our lives or something now vibes are shifting in in the leftward direction and that you cannot put a price tag on that so i think that's that speaks well to the future of the liberated uh land of chicago may, may i continue um uh i will stay tuned i know you'll be uh keeping a close eye on what's going on we'll see what happens and you know what the what the success and, and defeats are and, and how they're overcome but very quickly uh, where can people find your work? Give us a little soft promotion to, to end the, the podcast here. Sure. Um, well, I, as uh, Bronco mentioned, I'm an editor and writer at In These Times, so you can go to InTheseTimes.com. Most of the stuff on the website I've had some hand in, whether editing or assigning. Um, I write my own things there, as well as at Jacobin. Um, I wrote a couple pieces um, about the mayor's race there that you can check out. Um, and of course you can follow me online. I'm on Twitter at Miles K. Lassen. That's at M-I-L-E-S-K-L-A-S-S-I-N. And I will post, you know, future projects and things of that nature there. So yeah, check, check it out. And thanks for listening. Brilliant. Um, and everyone else over there, we, we are still on hiatus, but uh, keep your eye out for more of these kinds of episodes in the, in the months ahead. Thanks everyone for listening. Uh, cure everyone. Relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is the lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full? The relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is the lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full? Your nation, you hate nationalism. You don't hate your nation, you hate nationalism.